This is the Extra Innings Podcast. We're going to Extra Innings. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking down all the latest with the blue. Hosted by Dodger insider and award-winning reporter. You have one for most entertaining talk show host to listen to while on the way to work. David Vassay. Welcome to episode 12 of the Extra Innings Podcast presented by Corona Extra. It is the official cerveza of the Extra Innings Podcast and of La Vida Mas Fina. Find the fine life. Please drink responsibly. Corona Extra Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. We have a great episode for you this week. A.J. Ellis, former Dodger catcher, is going to join us on this week's podcast because June 18th is the anniversary of Clayton Kershaw's one and only no hitter. So we are going to hear from AJ Ellis and really get into detail about that night, June 18th, 2014 at Dodger Stadium when he was behind the plate and helped Shepard Kershaw through his one and only no hitter. Maybe one of the greatest games ever pitched by not only a Dodger, but by any pitcher in the history of the game. He was one Hanley Ramirez error away from a perfect game. He had 15 strikeouts with no walks in that game. And we're going to go through some of the at-bats with AJ coming up in just a couple of minutes here. So you don't want to miss that. And in case you never heard the radio final call from Charlie Steiner, here it is on the Dodgers radio network. The night that Clayton Kershaw pitched his one and only career no-hitter. Swung on and missed strike three and a no-hitter on the 15th strikeout of the game. Clayton Kershaw about to be mobbed by his teammates. The greatness of Clayton Kershaw shown off yet again. Another sparkling chapter in the career of Clayton Edward Kershaw. There it was, Charlie Steiner on the call on June 18th, 2014 from Dodger Stadium. And I was on the field after the game that night. I was trying to get Kershaw to come on post game, which I was successful in. And it was just an emotional scene for him, for his wife. Uh, you know, I've been there for World Series games, NLCSs, you know, the big clincher in D.C. where he came in and closed and the Dodgers were on to the NLCS in 2017. I've been on the field for World Series wins with him, but there was something different that night about the no-hitter, the almost perfect game. It, it felt like he wanted it in his career so badly and everything went right for him that night and his emotions came out. They were very raw that night, and it was before he and Ellen had their first child, so it was just them two on this journey that they've been on since high school. So it was on a lot of different levels, very emotional. So can't wait to talk to A.J. Ellis about that. Andre Ethier is also going to be on this week's podcast, as he is every week, and we're going to dive deeper into the sticky and Major League Baseball cracking down on it. But it's time now. For the leadoff spot. Batting leadoff, host of the Extra Innings Podcast, David Vassay. All right, on Tuesday, June 15th at Dodger Stadium, it was reopening night, and it was really great to see so many fans out there. I was broadcasting the pregame show from the left field pavilion, the top row there where they've got basically bar stools and tabletops available to be purchased to watch games from there. And they have really maximized the space that has just been a parking lot and asphalt for <laughs> all these years since 1962. And you have to give Janet Marie Smith a lot of credit. One day she will be in the Hall of Fame for her contributions to so many great ballparks and historic ballparks around the country. And she did a, an amazing job with the Centerfield Plaza out there. So if you haven't been to a game if I'm going to Dodger Stadium, I'm getting there an hour early now just to be able to walk around and experience all the great things out there in the center field plaza. But on Tuesday night, the first game, fans were allowed to pack Dodger Stadium. It was really great to see every fan out there with a smile on their face. 
literally every fan had a smile on their face. I know it was tough to get in there with the parking, and that's what happens when you go back to full capacity. I know some people that showed up for Dodger games when it was limited to 15 to 18,000 fans really enjoyed the leg room and the easiness of getting in and out of the stadium. But all in all, the people I spoke to said, yeah, it was more challenging to get in and out and get your food at the concession stands, but everybody had a great time and everybody was happy to be around each other. And Mookie Betts, maybe this is what Mookie Betts needed to get reengaged into the season. I haven't heard anybody talk about that. Everybody's been trying to come up with reasons why he hasn't been as good as he traditionally has been, and maybe it's because he was starting to get mentally fatigued with little to no fans in the stadium. Maybe 52,000 at Dodger Stadium was what Mookie Betts needed, and he put on a show that night where he was able to hit the go-ahead home run in the seventh inning. The 0-2. A fly ball to left center field. This one's got a chance, and it is gone! A home run! Mookie Betts, his eighth home run of the year, has given the Dodgers a 4-3 lead. This crowd is going apoplectic. Hopefully, this is the beginning of Mookie Betts' reopening day uh, on reopening night at Dodger Stadium. So hopefully that continues because the Dodgers desperately need Mookie Betts to be that guy, especially without Muncie, without Bellinger, and without Seager. They need Mookie Betts, and they need A.J. Pollock and Chris Taylor and Justin Turner. Those are the four guys they really need to step up. But going back to reopening night, I wanted to share the National Anthem, which was performed by an Extra Innings podcast guest. First time, right? Brad Paisley, huge Dodger fan, and he really set the tone for what was a magical night at Dodger Stadium in front of 52,000 plus. At this time, we ask that you please rise if you're able and kindly remove your caps for our National Anthem, performed tonight by an award-winning recording artist and a true blue Dodger fan. Fans, please welcome Brad Paisley. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight oh the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in gave proof through the night that our flag was still That literally was one of the best national anthems that I've ever heard. And I've been to a lot of sporting events. That's right up there. And I'm not just saying that because Brad has uh, has admitted 
that he is a big fan of Dodger talk and listens and is a big fan of the Dodgers. That was one of the best national anthems I have ever heard. So great job by Brad Paisley, and that really set the tone for a special night at Dodger Stadium for reopening night. All right, joining us on episode 12 of the Extra Innings podcast is one of my favorite people, and I miss him every single day at Dodger Stadium and have ever since he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies by the Dodgers. He has gone from being a work friend to a real friend, and that is former Dodger catcher A.J. Ellis. Hi, A.J. That, that is amazing to hear, Dave, that I've passed over the Rubicon mm-hmm. from – professional friend to personal friend i i am uh, i am uh, I'm, I'm shaking right now i'm so excited to hear that we've uh, we've crossed over in that relationship and i don't know do we get like matching t-shirts now do we get like hats or like what, what's the next step for us I, I think we should we should get a t-shirt pointing at you and one pointing at me <laughs> best friends it says let's let's do it i i let's feel like uh, i know that's how i feel i'm not sure if that's how you feel <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, uh, I do, uh, I really do miss our time. I miss being out in LA. I miss, uh, I miss coming to Dodger Stadium. Like I said, I said the day I was traded. It's, uh, it is the greatest uh, home office in, in the world. And uh, you know, I did, uh, I did enjoy my time there immensely. And uh, it was not just people uh, on the field or people in the in the stands um, or teammates that I had. Uh, it was people, you know, doing a variety of jobs and. Uh, that doesn't uh, disclude the media at all. Who had just uh, an important role in uh, providing a great lens for our fans into the game, and uh, yourself included. And uh, now, as we joke about it, but uh, you know, you uh, have been an amazing advocate and an amazing voice uh, for the Dodgers, and you're not afraid to tell it as, as it is. And uh, you give the Dodger fans a great perspective uh, of what it's like on a daily basis for the team. So, uh, congratulations to you. Congratulations to this podcast. Uh, another great avenue for you to connect with fans, and uh, fans are. Yeah, in L.A. And, and Dodger fans around the world are fortunate to be able to have um, access to a little bit even more of a behind-the-scenes look to the ball club. Well, thank you so much for that. And I know everybody kept asking me after the Dodgers won the World Series whether or not I got a ring or not. And honestly, the ring meant nothing to me after I got two texts from guys that I really respect and have accomplished so much in their careers. One was from you, and the other was from David Freeze. That really mm-hmm. sent a nice note, and honestly, to me, that meant more than any material thing that they could have given me. So, uh, your thoughtfulness uh, really meant a lot to me. And full disclosure, AJ, last week on the podcast, I did share one of my favorite memories being in Pittsburgh. I may have been overserved one night before <laughs> a game, and I walk into the clubhouse and. You out of nowhere throw a Gatorade bottle at me and say, "Hey, drink this; it'll help." <laughs> so that's one of my PNC were, Park uh, memories. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do remember that. I do remember that. You were, uh, it's, hey, it's uh, it's lessons we learn on the road. It's, it's how to hydrate, and uh, you know, if uh, we got to make sure that you're 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 able to uh, perform at a, at your peak level. So it's my job there at two o'clock in the afternoon to. Uh, you know, maybe put a little life back into the body, put a little color back into the flush face that you had, and uh, give you the ability to, uh, to to work a good game that night. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's maybe from too much experience on my own end of understanding how to bounce back uh, after after that, especially in, in Pittsburgh when uh, there's some good places to go and uh, some places to hang out with the boys after a game. Hey, speaking about the boys, how are my favorite people that you know? Not your family, but your Kentucky friends. <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah, they're doing awesome. Yeah, I, it was fun. I, we actually all turned 40 this year, and uh, all of us have uh, uh, gotten together. Well, we got together once. We went down to Kentucky and, supr- and surprised a couple of the guys and got to hang out with them. Just an awesome weekend. And then uh, later in this in this fall, uh, the four of us uh, are going to get together and uh, experience the Ryder Cup up here in Wisconsin. Whoa. I live in Wisconsin now, but uh, in Milwaukee, a suburb there. And uh, the Ryder Cup is coming to Whistling Straits, and we decided for a, a 40th birthday uh, celebration for us to kind of commemorate uh, you know, our relationship, our friendship, and, uh, and turning 40, we're going to spend some time at the Ryder Cup. So looking forward to that for sure. That is awesome. Maybe you'll uh, spend a night at the Iron Horse, you know, with the friends. 
<laughs> no, I'm so I'll, I'll I'll open up the the, the I'll open up the mansion. I'll Whoa! Up the, not a mansion. I sh- not the mansion. I shouldn't say that. I'll leave that to Andre. Andre is the one with multiple mansions all over the place. He actually claims that he owns my house here in Milwaukee. So he's told me before, but yeah, I uh, we that's a funny story. Me and Dre were on the bench one day, and uh, I was watching, and one of our hitters stepped up, who was notorious for. Uh, swinging at the very first pitch of the at-bat uh, wildly, didn't matter where the pitch was. And I said, I will bet my house that he swings at the first pitch right here. And, of course, as you would have it, he doesn't swing at the pitch. And Dre goes, you own, I own your house now. That's my house. And ever since, ever since that point, he's always referred to uh, me as being the caretaker for his Wisconsin home since uh, I, uh, I bet and lost my home uh, that day on the bench in, uh, in Dodger Stadium. That is awesome. You've had some uh, very interesting conversations. Zach <clears throat> Granke said he would trade you, and now Andre Ethier <laughs> told you that he owns your house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've been on the receiving end of uh, some, some fun relationships and uh, some, some, serious, uh, some serious characters uh, in our sport, and uh, it just made – it made the years even that much more enjoyable when you're around just some, some fun people um, and guys who can keep you on your toes at all times. Hey, you know, I know the Dodgers finally won the World Series, but you were with the Dodgers when they were at their lowest point and you were there for the renaissance and the first year of this string of division championships. It's got to be a lot more rewarding to be at the bottom and find your way to the top the way you did and some of the other guys on the team did. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting stretch for sure. Um, you know, 2008, 2009, um, you know, that's when I got called up to the major leagues for the first time and, and as, a, as a, a role player, a third catcher. But those were, those were some fun teams that I got to experience some, um, some deep playoff runs both times, losing in the NLCS to the Phillies and with Joe, Joe Torre as our manager and some amazing superstar talent of players that I was able to you know, call teammates like Manny Ramirez and Greg Maddox and Jeff Kent, no more Garcia Parra and, uh, you know, the list can go on and on with the guys that I got to play with there uh, in those those couple seasons. But as you mentioned, you know, the team went through uh, the bankruptcy and um, you know, the unfortunate divorce of Mr. and Mrs. McCourt. And, uh, you know, the team was kind of in, in, in transition for a couple of years. You know, Donnie came in um, and, and took over the team. But we didn't really know what was going to happen um, in the coming years. But, uh, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. And Ned Coletti kind of kept the team together and found a way to, to bring some players back in the fold. And obviously the big the biggest change was uh, – uh, you know, the Guggenheim group coming in and, and investing so much into the club and not just into the team, but into the stadium, into the experience. Uh, I'll never forget being in the clubhouse the very first day that, that they bought the club and uh, they came into the locker room and they said, hey, the very first thing we're going to do is you guys are going on a road trip and we're going to invest a bunch of money in redoing the uh, the wives and the family room upstairs because we understand that uh, happy families make happy ball players, And that was something that was long overdue Our, our our wives and families needed an upgrade up there. And uh, we, sure enough, we came back from that road trip and they just created a, a brand new, beautiful space that we knew that this was going to be a different environment um, and that it was going to be all about everything they could do to make the, uh, give the players the best opportunity to perform on the field. I remember that. And you guys were so excited over it. And at that time, I did not have any kids and I couldn't understand why you guys were so excited <laughs> over it. And now you understand clearly why. Yes, I do. Happy wife, happy <laughs> life. Right. Amen. <laughs> hey, AJ, um, I called you because uh, June 18th is the anniversary of Clayton Kershaw's one and only career no-hitter. It's the seven-year anniversary of you catching that no-hitter. And I know when I text you, you didn't even know it was the anniversary of it. But where do you rank that, being on the field, being there with Kershaw, and being the catcher the night that he threw that no-hitter in your career? Oh, I mean, it's it's without a doubt uh, a a top three, top five moment of my professional career. Um, you know, especially I look at regular season um, events and regular season, you know, uh, uh, you know, games that I got to play in. And, and if that's the case, it's definitely probably number one. Um, you know, I felt like I still feel like one of the greatest privileges of my career was being able to, to work sixty feet away from this um, the future Hall of Famer that, that Clayton is, and got to see his. His uh, his work ethic and, and, and his determination um, and his character up close um, for I don't know eight or nine years um, when we count, count some of the minor league time we got to spend together as well and, and for our professional relationship to transcend into uh, the close personal friendship that we have now um, you know he's still a guy that I uh, in, re- in regular contact with our families are in close contact with each other and um, you know to be there and be able to share that that day with him um, you know it's crazy to think it's been seven years now uh, and just uh, you know, uh, it was just a, 
a special, special time. I, I think if I look think back over the course of my career, um, you know, outside of some of those fun uh, clinching games, I think of maybe the, uh, people ask me a lot of that. What's your favorite game you ever played in? There was a we clinched in 2015 at in San Francisco, which was which is really special to, to clinch up there against the Giants and uh, Clayton threw a complete game one hitter. He was almost there. He, a complete game one hitter struck out 13 or 14 guys and, and then be able to celebrate there in San Fran and in the clubhouse and, and then afterwards at the hotel. That, that probably is probably my, my favorite uh, regular season moment. But uh, after that would definitely be Clayton's, uh, you know, his no hitter in that, that game against the Rockies. I went back to watch that entire mm-hmm. game last night. I wanted to point out a couple of different at-bats, but before we do, I know Clayton's all on that five-day schedule, good or bad, the next day he's on to the next start. But do you remember what it was like the day after the no-hitter when he walked into the clubhouse? Did you guys drive to the ballpark together that day? What was it like, if you remember? No, Yeah, no, I think it was I think it was a little bit of business as usual for him. But I also uh, – I think he was out – was really still in that reflection mode of just how special the previous night was. It wasn't just a no-hitter. I mean, it was – uh, it was it was him on you know on the national stage um, you know really putting a stamp on you know who he was as the dominant pitcher I think everyone at that point knew you know he had kind of you know transcended into being the, the, the best pitcher on the planet for that stretch of, of time that he was that he was out there competing but uh, for him to do it in the way that he did it, it wasn't just a no hitter it was complete just complete utter dominance and uh, it was the talk of baseball for the week that followed and you know, I think that was in the midst of if I'm not mistaken like a, a 38 or 39 inning scoreless streak he had going as well so he was. He was at the at uh, as as our friend John Pratt, Pratt likes to say he was at the peak of his powers, <laughs> and uh, he was he was uh, he was absolutely dominant uh, over that over the course of uh, over the course of that that month and um yeah so I think coming in the next day you know obviously there's a, there's the the next day media rush that comes as the national media now wants to be a part of it and there's uh, interviews and um, you know people from MLB Network want to connect and radio interviews and um, so there was definitely a flurry of, of people who really wanted to uh, to. Uh, get a little bit farther behind the curtain of what that game was all about. June 18th, 2014, the one and only no-hitter that Kershaw's pitched so far. And in that game, which was basically a perfect game, despite it not being that in the box score, there was only one three-ball count, AJ, and that was in the second inning to Josh Rutledge. Does that yeah, ring a, a bell? Sli- I think it's a, yeah, it was a good slider. I think he threw uh, to, to get a ground out, if I'm not mistaken. Uh uh, but yeah, it, it was a day where uh, it was it was one of those days where Clayton would get strike one in a simple pattern or his, his, his standard pattern of how he pitched at the time of you know just aggressive fastball inside. I think they were loaded up with all right-hand hitters on that day. Uh, aggressive line up, I just Dickerson led off as a lefty, but uh, but then he it was one of those those handful of times I can remember where he had his uh, A-plus slider and his A-plus curveball working on the exact same day. So really behind the plate, it was honestly just pretty simple for myself of just putting down a pitch, getting strike one, and then kind of just mixing and matching between the two breaking balls um, that we needed to use. Uh, and he was he was efficiently putting guys away. And, you know, to strike out 14 guys, I believe it was. that and, 15. And so few, Don't shortchange them. Yeah. yeah, that's right. 15 <laughs> guys and, 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 so, and so few pitches. Uh, this speaks to how just uh, you know dominant and efficient he was in that game. Hey, uh, the seventh inning was very eventful. Uh, Miguel Rojas made a great play on Tulowitzki, and Adrian had a nice scoop. But also in that seventh inning was Hanley's uh, throw that Adrian may or may not have should have uh, been able to get. And Brandon Barnes was the next batter after the Hanley error in the seventh inning. Were you a little concerned that that may frustrate Clayton and things could unravel there in that inning? No, I, I actually, I wasn't. I, I think my only concern at that point was that you know, he had pitched, uh, you know, six clean innings in a row. So this is his first time being in the stretch the entire day. So, you know, I, this guy, he just pitched in the, from the lineup for, for six straight innings. So maybe trying to find his rhythm, find his timing from the stretch, but it was pretty evident that he was uh, he was in a good spot right there, but really tough play for Hanley. Uh, I know he came and got that on the run, and I, I love watching back um, the highlights and watching you know Hanley's hat go flying off. And if you go back and watch it, you can see Clayton bend over and pick up his pick up Hanley's hat, hand it to him, and say, "Hey, nice try uh, to Hanley." Just like no frustration, no no irritation, and Clayton probably you know probably never even looked at the scoreboard. It was always on to the next hitter, and it was on to the next guy. 
uh, yeah, to get a strike out of Barnes and then, you know, two of Witsky, just a, uh, you know, always a, a tough battle in those NOS years that we had. And he and Clayton had, had many, uh, you know, epic showdowns over the years. And ground ball down the line, Miguel Rojas, who, uh, you know, has, has really made a name for himself. You know, I think back then he was kind of a, a, an up-and-down uh, utility infielder can kind of plug and, you know, more for his glove than his bat. And, um, you know, as an aside, really proud of Miguel and the career he's been able to carve out, carve out the leader he's become for that Marlin team. But, yeah, just a fantastic play down the line and just to get rid of the ball and, and, a, and a great scoop by a gold glover over there at first base. So just a good all-around play. And then uh, to, to go and um, strike out, you'll have to remind me, I believe it was Will and Rosario was next. Um, if that's not a mistake. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, that, he was. Threw, it, threw, it, threw, it, threw a nasty curveball there to freeze him. And at that moment, chatting off, uh, trotting off the field, it's almost like, hey, that's, that's the bullet we dodged. Um, you know, let's, let's push through the finish line right here. Yeah, and in that eighth inning, it was very easy for you guys to get through that inning. And I noticed when both of you were coming off the field, but especially Clayton, he had a sense. You could tell he had that smirk on his face coming back to the dugout. He had a sense he was going to get to the finish line. Did you feel that way too after coming off the field in the eighth inning? Yeah, it felt good about it for sure, and you're exactly right. It, it, was, it was very, very evident that the Rockies had figured out do not let this guy get two strikes because he's got nasty strikeout stuff. And I feel like their uh, desire to swing at first pitches and be a bat and, and just try to get the first pitch they saw in play um, was definitely what their game plan became from that point. But there's a great moment there after the eighth inning. Uh, you know, it was uh, – uh, we're sitting over the bench and uh, Rick Honeycutt and myself are over there. And obviously it's a no-hitter. And it really wouldn't matter if it's a no-hitter or not. Clayton's going to sit by himself and no one's going to talk to him. Everybody's going to let him stay in his, his tunnel vision. And, uh, you know, Rick and I are trying to figure out who they're going to pinch hit. I, I can't remember who all they had. I, I do the pitch hitter ended up being Charlie Culberson, who became a, a Dodger hero with a big home run in his career. Um, but uh, Charlie was with the Rockies as a bench player. But Rick and I are trying to figure out who they're going to who they're gonna pinch hit and you know, what our game plan is going to be against him. And him and I are kind of – Rick and I are kind of standing there talking and looking. And all of a sudden we feel this presence come behind us. And it's Clayton right there. And he looks like this. He says, hey, who do you think they're going to pinch hit? Well, you don't want to jinx a no-hitter, and no one wants to talk to the pitcher. So Rick and I are just staring at each other like, uh, uh, oh, my, uh. <laughs> like, I'm not going to go first. And uh, and Rick and then Clayton just says, I think it's going to be Culberson. I'm just going to pitch to my strengths. And I'm like, and I just kind of nod my head like, yeah, pitch to strengths. And he went back and sat back. <laughs> but uh, Rick, 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 and I always chuckle when we tell that story, just thinking about nobody wanted to be the one to talk to Clayton. And Clayton came over and uh, wanted to talk about who the pinch hitter was going to be and yeah, I and mean, there wasn't going to be some detailed game plan. Hey, Charlie Culberson, we got to go curveball first pitch. This is great. <laughs> no, man, you were you were so locked. He was so locked in on that day that uh, pitch to strengths, you know. And for ninety nine percent of Clayton's career, especially in that that era that he was pitching, pitch to strengths was usually a pretty easy game plan uh, for him to go out and and, and be uh, be who he was. Yeah, Culberson swung at the first pitch for the second out. He, did. he, had, <laughs> he had a pop, he had a, a nice pop up to Yasiel out there in right field, which is probably the only time that uh, Yasiel caught a ball with two hands out there in right field, which was interesting. <laughs> you go back and watch that highlight. But, uh, yeah, he secured the catch and then uh, set up the uh, the final uh, bat with Culberson. Uh, I'm sorry, with uh, Dickerson, uh, which is also has a great uh, fun moment where uh, Clayton uh, – I'm sorry, uh, Corey flips a foul ball in the, into the uh, left field uh, or, or behind the dugout uh, bleachers, and I go running in full steam, and I end up in Magic Johnson's lap over there in the owner's box. And I'm trying to catch a foul ball that's probably about 25 rows deep, but uh, at that point I'm trying to catch everything I can. You had to know I was going to bring that up, so you jumped me. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. It usually comes up. It's one of the, it's one of those funny. I, I ran full steam into that thing like an idiot. You know, it's it's it's, it's just uh, trying to make a play, trying to get there, and the adrenaline took over. But uh, yeah, uh, I go running in. Clayton's like laughing at me if I remember rightly. He's like kind of just, like smiling at me, like, "What are you doing? You're 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 an idiot." Yeah, and so uh, yeah, but he went back, and uh, you know, I was able to. You know, uh, yeah, uh, call, ma- call a call a pitch. Yeah, and, uh, he threw a slider and got the punch up. Did you? Did Magic say anything to you? No, I don't think so. I don't even know if Magic's there. To be honest with you. I just know I was like right by. I just know I was right by the owner's box, and it was right there. And uh, yeah, and then uh, yeah, next pitch, a, a slider that uh, that got 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 to the glove, and uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if you're gonna you're gonna bring this one up or not either, but. Uh, uh, it's funny if you watch the highlights back and watch the game. Uh, three weeks earlier, uh, roughly in Philadelphia, Josh I wasn't Beckett going was to bring this up. I was not <laughs> going to bring this up. 
uh, Josh Beckett threw a no hitter, and Drew Butera. Love Drew. Drew's a great friend, a great another great uh, great uh, character in our game. Drew was the starting catcher, and uh, Drew went out to celebrate as he should, and he's out there in the dog pile bouncing around. His mask, catcher's mask, goes flying into the pile. Well, here comes uh, the athletic Midwest, uh, 30, uh, 35-year-old you know, lumbering catcher into the dog pile, jumps up into the pile to celebrate with my teammates, and I land with my right foot right on top of Drew's catcher's mask and uh, pretty severely sprained my ankle. And they put me on the DL for 18 days. And I always gave Drew a hard time about it. And like said, hey, like if I ever catch a no-hitter, I'm not taking my mask with me. I'm not going to put my teammates in harm way. I'm a better teammate than you. Like, I care about people. And just giving them a hard time. But I did. I, I, I see uh, he uh, got the strikeout. And if you watch back, I leave my mask at home plate. <laughs> and I run out there. Because, uh, like I told Drew, I care about my teammates more than he does. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember the day, the next day after we got back from Philadelphia. I walk into the clubhouse and your ankle is all taped up, I was, and you're like so bummed out that happened. Oh, and I was like, and I was like, I think I was talking to you. I think I was talking to Alana Rizzo at the time. I'm like, please, like, get video footage of the story. Like, the last thing I want is like for people like to not believe me. I think that I like was, uh, you know, like you, like as you said earlier, overserved in Philadelphia on Saturday, and, like stumbled, stumbled over a curb. Or, or trip somewhere, but like, please let people know this was actually like an idiotic, idiotic, non-athletic, uh, unathletic move that actually did happen on the baseball field. Hey, speaking of the celebration, there's that iconic photo of you and Kershaw embracing on the mound. How big of that photo is hanging in your living room right now? <laughs> is it 16 by 20 or larger? Uh, it is. You know what? I think. Uh, well, which one? We got one. We got one on each floor of the house. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, there. Are, hey, I'll, I'll be first one to be, uh, you know, self-deprecating. And there are people out there who will say that I am sitting right now in the house that Kershaw built. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not like I. I. There's part of me that can't deny that I, our relationship was special, and um, I will be the first to admit that my career was probably extended and, and probably a little bit overinflated because of uh, our relationship and uh, my ability to work with him. But no, I do have a nice. Uh, I haven't. I. You know what? Honestly, Dave, I haven't put anything up. I do have a, a bin full of no-hitter the memorabilia from that game. And oh. It was a scorecard and um, baseball from that game and a couple other items. It was definitely those photos. Um, and we've talked about doing something, uh, putting, putting, up, uh, putting up maybe a plaque. But at the same time, like, um, it's similar to what you said earlier. It's like not about like, the items. Like you mentioned the ring. Um, it's about the relationships. And it's about the memories. And like, I, I love the memories I have from that day. And uh, even just talking right now, I'm smiling right now, just thinking back to so much that happened um, on that day and, and just, just, just the moments of that day. And you talk about celebrating, and you know, there's a great moment there on the field. And, you know, Ellen, she comes down, and, and, and they get to share it together. But we go in the clubhouse, and, you know, obviously, uh, um, I don't know, if, you know if fans know this or not, but there's a major league rule, and it's a, it's a very wise rule, that there's not, there's not allowed to be alcohol served in the home clubhouse because people have to drive home after the game. Um, but we uh, we had other items of, of uh, you know different types of uh, you know, milk and soap and you know anything you get in shaving cream and <laughs> Clayton got to go Clayton got to go get in the shower and we all got to kind of do our best to kind of dirty him up a little bit. But no, after he showers, did his media, he was sitting there by the locker and um, you know one of the traditions I had uh, when I was in LA and in my career was if the Dodgers or the team I played with won, my son Luke um, got to come and spend time in the clubhouse afterwards because the clubhouse was. Was was fun and boisterous, and you know it was a good good place for kids. And you know, he got to come in and have a chocolate milk and um, just have just have a good time. But uh, he uh, there's a I have a great picture of him and Clayton, and they're both kind of holding up a zero sign with their fingers. And Luke has no idea what he's doing. He's you know he's five years old at the time, and I'm sorry, four years old at the time, and he doesn't even know what he's doing. But he's he's there with Clayton. They're both holding up a zero, and it's like memories like that are, are what are really uh, much more special than uh, you know any any uh, framed photo or. Uh, you know, nostalgic uh, plaque or anything like that. It's the memories, it's the people, um, it's conversations like this um, that just, you know, we get to share. Yeah, I like to call it the A.J. Ellis no-hitter now. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Please, let's, 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 let's get that going. Yes. Do, do the kids, do the Ellis kids call Clayton Uncle Clayton, or do you just keep it at Mr. Kershaw or Clayton? What, what's the uh, appropriate addressing for your kids? Well, you know what's funny is, uh, you know, I got to spend some time with him when they played the Brewers, and we, we got to hang out together. And he, I, my kids aren't the only one. I've, I've been around other people, and for some reason, like, it always rolls together. It's like Clayton Kershaw, 
So even like my kids, will, my my kids will be addressing him, and like like Luke will be like, "Hey, Clayton Kershaw, like, what's your favorite stadium you ever played in?" And I'm like, I'm like Luke, Luke, just call him Clayton or call him Kersh or call him or call him like or that. But you know, but uh, no, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's funny how. And then it's, again, like my kids aren't the only one. You'll be out, and people will be out like, "Hey, Clayton Kershaw." It's it's just one of those names that just it rolls it rolls hand in hand. You know, I don't I don't hear too many uh. AJ Ellis is. I'm sure you don't hear too many Dave Vassays. I I, we probably can't repeat the words that were heard when we're seen by, <laughs> by fans or, or by crowds. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely uh, Clayton Kershaw. You hear that one a lot. Well, this was awesome, AJ. I, I wish I could just. How about this? You tell the family you're occupied the rest of the day. Uh, I won't go to the game tonight, and we'll just keep talking. <laughs> hey, I'm in on that. I love I love connecting with you, Dave. Love telling old old stories and just reflecting and just remembering. And, um, I think we talked about it last time, uh, you know, you know, I chatted is it's really important for me. Like it's really important for all of us just to take a time to, you know, as, as Dodger fans, as, as, as people who've had the, the, the fortunate time to, to be in that Dodger organization, um, just to like, you know, have be grateful and, uh, you know, just show a lot of gratitude towards just the experience that we had. Um, and, you know, things for yourself are currently having, um, there's no place like it. Um, it's, it's, a uh, it's a, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a great home office to get the call to go to. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear that the, the fans are getting back into a full capacity and, um, it's going to be a fun, uh, a fun summer. And I'm um, looking forward to watching, um, you know, NL West baseball, uh, which is such just a, just a, a really good division. And it'll be fun to watch, uh, the rest of the year. Yes, it will. And uh, I look forward to seeing you when Andre Ethier and I come visit in his uh, summer home in Milwaukee one day. So yeah, I, I appreciate that's that. That's right. We'll see hey, you out I'll there. Be here. I'm, the, I'm the caretaker. I'll be the guy out, you know, uh, <laughs> mowing the grass and pulling the weeds. And I'm just glad that uh, Andre allows me just a little, uh, me and the family, a, a little a little nook in the, in the basement for us to stay in. So. Oh, all right, man. This is great. We'll do this again soon. I hope to see you in person uh, uh, very soon. So thank you so much for, for taking the time out to share these great stories with us. Awesome, Dave. Good, good to connect with you. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the time out there. And, uh, you know, tell, tell the boys I said, hey, when you get in the clubhouse next. I will. Man, that is awesome. I am not crying, but it was really great to talk to AJ Ellis. And those were the type of conversations and the tone of the conversations we would have when I'd walk into the clubhouse and we just talk, not for 25 minutes, but we would talk and he would treat me as an equal. And I always appreciated that because certainly when it comes to baseball, I am not his equal. And I always appreciated him taking the time to explain things to me and make sure I got it right because that's the number one priority for me is to get it right. And I, he understood that, and that's why he always took the time to explain to me so I could share it with you after the game or on the pregame show. So just awesome to talk to A.J. Ellis about a great night on June eighteenth, 2014, the seven-year anniversary of Clayton Kershaw's no-hitter. All right, it's time now for our stat of the week. And Julio Urias did not get his 10th win, but he has nine already this year. He is on pace to become the first Dodger to win 20 since Kershaw did it the year of the no-hitter when he won 21 games in 2014. There have only been three Mexican-born pitchers to reach the 20-win plateau in baseball history. Fernando Valenzuela did it in 1986 when he was 21 and 11. Teddy Higuera also did it in 86 for the Brewers. He was 20 and 11. And Esteban Loaiza was the last Mexican-born player to win 20 games. And that happened in 2003 for the Chicago White Sox, 21 and 9. And I predicted Julio would win 20 games after he got to his fourth and I feel like he's on track now, and if it continues to go this way for him this year, he certainly will be the first Mexican-born player since Esteban Loaiza to win 20 games. 
My favorite. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to see you're not wearing khakis. Your favorite. And not everyone holds themselves to a high physical standard around here, but... Uh, Probably not Vasse's favorite. I know no one listens to your show, so... <laughs> <laughs> How so, dare you? <laughs> Just kidding. DB is joined by Andre Ethier. All right. Another week with Andre Ethier. Did you make it back safely from Cooperstown? I am. I'm backed up. I'm safe and down here... Uh, in the south coast in Laguna, hanging out, waiting for you to come visit me at the beach. <laughs> I'm waiting for the invite. Uh, wait, you didn't get my text the other day? No, no, it must have not gone through. Uh, you're right, it didn't go through. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, people look at me sideways when I go that far, you know, down into the, uh, the OC. When I go behind the OC curtain, people start to look at me sideways. Why? Well, I mean... Hey, hey, we're the same guy. I'll give you a pass to come down here anytime you want, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Hey, uh, the best. Hey, all I want to know is how do you think this team is looking now after, uh, you know, a, a, a decent road trip, but one that, uh, I mean, I was out on the West, on the East Coast the same time as them, and um, you know, those Atlanta games didn't go the way we wanted, but. Uh, Pittsburgh, you know, not not the opponent we thought, but definitely, uh, you know, took the games we had to. Hey, look, I'll be honest with you. They're doing what they should be doing. They should beat Pittsburgh. They should beat the Rangers. And they should win two out of three from the Phillies at the very least. But after Arizona, who are just having an awful season, the schedule gets tough. They got the Padres. They got the Cubs. They got the Giants. They got an East Coast trip to Washington and Miami, and they're without Max Muncie and probably without Cody Bellinger. So now you don't have Muncie, you don't have Bellinger, and you don't have Seager. I'm a little nervous. Um, yeah, but I think this team is weather storm. You know, it's one thing I've learned, uh, Dave, when you have a team, uh, you know that has this many stars, this many great players on it. Sometimes when you actually subtract some of these guys, it's, it's a crazy thing how some, you know, other parts of, of this team, other ingredients step up and uh, fill a void that you, uh, you know, might have when losing those type of guys. Okay. So that leads us to Mookie Betts, who has not had a good start to the year. And I've talked to a few people that believe that maybe his left shoulder is still bothering him. How much does that affect a hitter, something as small as that, uh, when you're trying to hit? Because I've heard his front shoulder is not in sync with his uh, with every other body part. Is that significant? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, everyone's different. Um, and that's not just a cop-out answer. That's just a real answer. I mean, guys have different things that egg them and plague them and, you know, what one guy might feel not be might be the same. So I'm gonna take a hard <laughs> pass on that and not try to come up with an answer other than, um, you know what? This game has shifted a ton, right? Like me and you both seen this. When you're playing 15, 20 years ago, you were expected to play through every minor ache and pain you could. Because 80, 70, 60% of you were better than the option they had. That was their, you know, that was the answer they always had. You went out there and you ran out there no matter what. Um, which, you know, there's something to say to that. But at the same time now, it's, if you're not 100%, it doesn't matter if you're Cody Bellinger. If you're whatever, let's get you 100% so we can have you as close to 100% as we can. And we'll make do with what we have. All right, Dre, this is the topic of not only this week, but it has been the last couple of weeks. So now Major League Baseball has decided to enforce rules to eliminate pitchers from getting extra sticky advantage on their grip of the baseball. From a hitter standpoint, have they gone too far on the opposite end of the spectrum trying to eliminate guys using more than just rosin just to get a simple grip on the baseball instead of trying to weaponize it. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I, I have, I think it's reached its peak of what you can possibly do. Yeah. Like without sticking a hook in your finger and I don't <laughs> know, like, but um, yeah, I think it's reached the top peak, but the top peak has drastically altered the game. I mean, you're seeing these, these behind the pitcher, uh, you know, 
angles of the camera and watching these guys throw, I, I don't ever remember seeing balls move like that and do that type of stuff. You're seeing these, uh, you know, now that this so-called crackdown has happened, uh, a lot of pitchers out there are starting to lose a lot of vertical and, and RPM, you know, spin on their balls out there just starting to crack down. So, yeah, it, it's there's something to be said that, you know, it isn't just rosin and, and uh, you know, this crackdown that these that they're coming down on is warranted. Yes, 100%. Because there is there's a, a definite unfair advantage going on uh, by the pitchers up there with what they're doing. I mean, I, I, you you got to see it. I mean, how many times have you seen that behind the pitcher angle and you're seeing just a regular two seam fastball move? You know, eight nine inches. You know, vertically or I'm uh, not vertically, but you know, horizontally on a plane, and it's a two seamer, right? Yeah, it looks like a wiffle ball at 97. At 97. I, I mean, I've never seen that before. I, I think the first time, right, these hip shot balls, you know, that especially they love, righty on lefties love them, where they threw that two-seamer right towards the left-hander's front hip, and they try to get it to come back over. I mean, that first started really getting big, maybe late 2000s, and not too many guys could do it. A lot of the Japanese pitchers who came over threw a version of that. I think it was called the Shuto is what they're terming, and it's actually almost like a pro-rated, uh, pro-rated uh, uh, fastball where they're still throwing a fastball. They actually, like, turn their hands inwards like they're throwing a changeup, but they're still throwing a fastball, so it allows them to get that that inside cut and move on it or, or you know, the cut back on it. And uh, that was the first time i really seen a lot of guys do that. And if you look back at guys like Tanaka and Kuroda and, and those guys, those guys were throwing a ton of that stuff. Um, but then I think as you start introducing more of this sticky stuff, it allowed these guys to pick up that spin rate that allowed these balls to really catch some seams and, and move like that. And um, I mean, I, I saw, I've seen Charlie Blackman say stuff. I've seen many pitchers say stuff. Um, you know, it's not just hitting to where you know it's going to be. It's hitting to guessing where it's going to be. Uh, and that's and that's for the most part, that's what hitting is. Sometimes when you face some of these pitchers, it's, having a very well-educated guess of where that ball's going to end up. And that's sometimes what that hitting is. But across the board, when you see that, uh, you know, not everyone has the Grom stuff. Not everyone has, you know, this A-plus stuff that um, there's a lot of pitchers now showing. Well, I've talked to a couple of pitchers that admitted to me that the spider tack was definitely over the line. But I have heard players of your generation and currently say that they want pitchers to have a grip. And if Major 100%. League Baseball is not going to allow pitchers to have a grip, don't you feel like that's going a little bit too far on the opposite end? 100%, David. You know, I even used, I even had a little bit of pine tar on my glove when I was playing outfield. Really? Because, yeah, 100%. Like, I learned that from some of the older outfielders because you play at Dodger Stadium at night and it's there's wet there's dew out on the field and you have to have something in there to have a little grip makes sense and make and, and, and to have a little grip on the ball and so uh, yeah i always i played something my whole career like that and uh i mean i don't know if that i think that's a part of the rules of fashion or not but like that was why we said and i never once ever batted and i if i saw a pitcher have wow. something like that a little rag or something with pine tar uh, you know, pine tar and rosin combo. Cause I, I knew that was a part of it. Having that grip, having that action, that's good. But we, like you just pointed out, there's a line to be crossed. And I think baseball, I think the organizations, I think teams did a very bad job of policing themselves mm-hmm. and just stopping and, and, you know, dictating where that line was when they knew this was an obviously uh, rampant thing that kept accelerating over the years of use and you know hey all of a sudden i'm picking up rpm on my fastball let's see how much steer i can get and how much more i can pick up hey Dre, so are you cool as a hitter to have a pitcher with the suntan lotion on his forearm and maybe a little something else to get a better grip are you cool with that yeah i i i have seen guys i've done it i've seen pitchers on my team i've seen opposing pitchers do it and i was never uh you know, it never concerned me. Hey, you know what? Uh, just get up there, hit, do it. Uh, you know, maybe the guy, especially if it was a guy who needed help, I had no problem with it, Dave. I was, you know, <laughs> I'm going to hit off you anyway, so it don't matter. Yeah, um, use whatever you want. 
do whatever you want, right? But uh, no, um, you know, there's a fine line to cross. Um, you know, I, I think it's obviously when they started being able to analyze pitches, this vertical, horizontal break stuff. Yeah. I think there was a better understanding of how much you can manipulate the ball even more off of spin rate stuff, off of forward spin, you know, back spin, spin, all this stuff, you know, slider spin you could see. When if I if I just had a hundred more revolution, it has this more much bite, and then what do you see? Like if a guy has a certain spin rate over, over on his on his breaking ball above this rate, he has like a you know only gives up a hit nineteen percent of the time, you know. So you, when you can actually translate and applicate these stats from these spin rates and from this sticky stuff into the game, you can see why there's been a more rampant use of it. All right, Dre. Awesome stuff as always. That's why I love having this blank canvas that we can share together. And next episode, I know you have a Disneyland trip planned, so you could give us a scouting report on the Ethier family trip to Disneyland. Right. We're going the first day. They're not you know, making guests wear masks. Obviously, we're vaccinated, ready to go because of that. But, uh, yeah, we're excited. First time back at Disneyland for uh, – in two years, uh, going for a uh, my daughter's fifth uh, fifth birthday, so uh, fun time for her. This is what she's been asking for for the last, uh, uh, I guess, half year leading up to her birthday was be able to go to Disneyland. And yeah, I'm excited to take her. I'm glad Southern California, California is opening back up and uh, big games uh, now at Dodger Stadium with full capacity. And I uh, can't wait to sit in the booth with you at, at a game. Um, and enjoy a Dodgers game with the stadium packed. I know you probably feel the same way too. Yeah, can't wait. But not the booth. We're sitting in the home run seats together. Oh, yes, I forgot. We're just in the home run seats with our gloves, and we're going to catch a homer. I'm going to have some pine tar in my glove too. Hey, that, hey if, it <laughs> makes the ball, if it makes the ball stick in your glove when you catch that home run, yeah, no, one, no one's going to say anything. All right, sounds good. We'll talk to you next week, Dre. Thanks. All right, Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Extra Innings Podcast presented by Corona. I certainly did. It was uh, great to catch up with A.J. Ellis, not only to talk about the anniversary of Clayton Kershaw's no-hitter against the Rockies, but it was also great to celebrate him, celebrate his career, and just reflect on the time that he spent with the Dodgers. And always great to catch up with our guy, Andre Ethier. We'll be back with you next week on episode 13 of the Extra Innings Podcast. I have another former Dodger that I have not spoken to in a long time lined up, so you don't want to miss that on episode 13. It'll be out next Wednesday. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you from the ballpark. See ya. We don't have to do anything extra. They've made a choice. This has been the Extra Innings Podcast. Extra Dodger content for Dodger fans who can't get enough of the blue. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss a single Dodger game at AM570LA Sports on the iHeartRadio app.